Luke chapter 2. So today we're continuing in this series um, called Jesus Come and See. And uh, we started it a couple of weeks ago. And we're looking kind of at a biography of Jesus for the most part. I mean, it's impossible to do that. There, you know, from age 12 to age 30, we really don't have anything to go off of in Scripture. Um, and, and the Gospels themselves are a sufficient biography. Obviously, you don't need me coming along 2,000 years later to try to do one better. But we're trying to just sort of summarize the high points of Jesus' life and ministry. And so this series, Come and See, that, that's what we've called it. And, and it's an invitation for us to do that. Maybe you're already a Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. This is an invitation for you to come and, and see and to look a little more deeply than what you have before, to continue that pursuit of being closer and closer in your walk with God. Now, for others of you, maybe you're not quite there yet. You haven't come to that place yet where you've made the decision to give your life to Christ, where you've made the decision to say, you know what, I have come and I've seen and I'm ready now to follow. And so you're just checking things out. Well, hopefully this series will be a benefit for you to help kind of summarize, again, the high points of Jesus's ministry, exactly who he is. Scripture is our source. That's our material that we're using. It's completely trustworthy. We've already established that a couple of weeks ago. But we're just kind of moving through. In some ways, chronologically, later in the series, it'll be difficult to move chronologically. Uh, but for right now, we're moving chronologically through who Jesus is. Last Sunday, we started looking at how he is eternal God, right? He is, uh, he is without beginning. He is without end. Uh, he, he, he has always existed. There's never been a time when Jesus was not, right? That he is eternal in his nature. Uh, he is, in fact, not created. He is the creator. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 helps us to see that. John chapter 1 helps us to see that as well. Uh, it, it explains in very, very clear terms that, that Jesus, uh, as God, made his entrance into this world, right? That he took on flesh, that he dwelt among us. And so we, we realized last Sunday, we were reminded that Jesus is eternal, without beginning, without end. He is also God, Right? No less than God himself. When he was in the manger, no less God than when he was risen from the dead. Always has been, always will be, always was when he walked this earth. He was no less than God himself. And so we talked about the Trinity last Sunday as well, how we serve one God. The Bible makes it clear that God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4, uh, the Hebrews would call it the Shema back in the Old Testament time and even still here O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one and so God is one God but he's shown himself and he manifests himself in three persons father son and holy spirit and, and so when we look today at what we're going to look at it's hopefully going to help to kind of fill a little bit of maybe a gap for some people as to what the significance of that first Christmas is all about a couple of years or so ago, my family and I, we did something a little different at Christmas time. We decided to get a puzzle. And so we got a puzzle, and uh, it was a Christmas-themed puzzle. Went down to Hobby Lobby. You know, they got like a bazillion to choose from down there. And so we picked one, and they're always 40% off, by the way. And so we got a, we got a puzzle there, and uh, it was christmas theme, and we brought it home. And the goal was that from Thanksgiving until Christmas Eve, we were going to work on this as a family and get this thing done. Now, there was a little problem, and the problem was, for me, I started one day, one afternoon, I think, when I was home, and uh, I put together, along with April, kind of the edges, because, you know, all puzzle people start with the edges, the border, and I did a few of those, and then I couldn't handle it anymore, and I was done. I didn't touch it almost hardly at all until, you know, it was all done, and so, so my part was very minimal. It was mainly Hannah, and it was mainly Susie, who put the whole thing together, and a friend of Hannah's as well, and so they were, and it got got done. It got done right there before Christmas Eve, but there was one minor problem with the whole thing. It literally, this sounds like kind of the classic puzzle story, but this literally genuinely happened. Got down to the very last piece, and it was missing. 
This was a thousand piece puzzle, all right? And we paid like $8.99 for this thing. And so it was going to have to get put together. And here it is almost Christmas time. And it was missing. And we still to this day don't know what happened. If the dog ate it or if it just got accidentally thrown away or just knocked underneath something, we couldn't find it. But we looked and looked, couldn't find it. So the only logical thing that we could do was to go back to Hobby Lobby. And so one day I went back to Hobby Lobby, and, uh, and I found, thankfully, the exact same puzzle. We took it home. We started sorting through it. We pulled out the one piece that we, uh, th- that we thought was it, right, and, and, and that matched. All the others, we threw them away. Didn't need them. I mean, we don't need 999 puzzle pieces for nothing. So we got that one, and we put it into place, and, uh, and we still have that puzzle, right, still today. And I learned a lesson that the most important piece of any puzzle is the one that's missing, right? The most important piece, it's not the middle, it's not that corner, the most important piece of any puzzle is the piece that is missing. And when we look at this stage of kind of this biography of Jesus, think about it in this way for just a moment. If we didn't have everything we're about to look at in Scripture, we would go from Jesus being eternal God who's always existed without beginning, without end, with all power, creator, right? We would go from that to suddenly this story in the Bible and the Gospels where he's now walking on earth. Well, how did this happen? And he's healing people and he's preaching and he's telling parables. And then ultimately he has some enemies and they crucify him. And then he rises from the dead. And then a whole lot of other people for the rest of the New Testament begin following and even dying for the movement that he started. And we would be left with this big missing piece of, well, how did we get here? How do we get from eternal God suddenly dying on a cross? Well, the missing piece for a lot of people is what we're going to look at today. It's what theologians call the incarnation, and it's what we call Christmas. And so what I want to do is I'm going to move through kind of a, a classic biblical passage that deals with Christmas in Luke chapter 2. That's why I want you to hold your spot there. But we're also at the same time, we're going to take a look at how this part of the biography of Jesus is so incredibly crucial. And a lot of people fall away from who Jesus is because of this component of what we're about to look at this morning. And for all of us, right, all of us, when we grasp and we truly understand the significance of that first Christmas, and we're going to kind of sift through that a little bit today, three months ahead of time, as we sift through this, what I hope for is that helps those puzzle pieces to fit a little more tightly for you. And if there's been a missing piece, hopefully this will be the one that you find, right, that pulls the story together to where you can see not just what, but also why. And so today, Merry Christmas, we're going to take a look at specifically the birth of Christ. John chapter 114, you don't have to turn there, hold your spot in Luke chapter 2. This is a passage in John. John historically is not really known for having any type of a birth narrative. It's usually Matthew and it's Luke. But John chapter 1, we looked at this last Sunday, talks about how in the beginning was the Word, that's talking about Christ, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. But look at what it says in John chapter 1, verse 14. I think, do we have this one here that we can bring up? John chapter 1, 14. It says, and the word became flesh, that's clearly referring to Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it, the word Jesus here, the context makes it clear, became flesh. That's what the incarnation means. That's what the word is. It, it's this picture that, that God right, chose to take on flesh and to come in the form of a person. That he chose to do that. That is the meaning of incarnation. The word Jesus became flesh and he dwelt. That word can also be translated as tabernacled or it can literally be translated that he pitched his tent among us. 
right? And, and the result of that is that little word in the second line, and we saw. I want you to hang on to that because we're going to come back to that in just a second. We saw, John was able to say, we saw him, we saw his glory, we saw what he was all about, we witnessed these things, right? Everything changed there on that first Christmas. And so let's go ahead and move over to Luke chapter 2, and let's take a look at this really, really popular, well-known, read around the world on Christmas Eve passage of Scripture that captures for us in complete truth It captures for us some of the details of that first Christmas. Luke chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. Historically, verse 1 through verse 20 is kind of like that passage read at Christmas. We're just going to move down through verse 7 for what we're looking at today. So Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So it says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now let me pause there for just a second, and here's why. Luke puts all kinds of historical timestamps on his, on his document, right? We're going to call this a document. It's a, it's a uh, book of Scripture. It's without error. But when you look at it as a document, Luke puts throughout his gospel, he puts these timestamps, these historical timestamps that could easily have been refuted on the day that it was written. People could have easily said, oh no, Caesar Augustus wasn't ruling when, when Jesus was born. Or, no, Quirinius never issued any kind of a, you know, any, any of this. And, and People could dispute all of this, and yet they haven't, right, with any with any uh, truthfulness, Luke puts these timestamps, these historical timestamps, all through his gospel. And, and it supports the fact that this is something that we can trust, that we can believe in. He goes on, verse 3, he says, And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, we're not going to spend really any time looking at kind of breaking down those seven verses Uh, Maybe we'll do that as we do move a little closer to Christmas. But what I want you to see here is that this is as strong of a testimony of the entrance of Jesus into this world as we know it, as we have in Scripture, right? It, it, It lays out the details, of Mary, that she was a virgin, she was betrothed to Joseph, that they traveled to Bethlehem because of a decree for a census, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, Jesus was born, and he was placed in a manger. All those details are laid out here. But let's just clarify, and I don't want to take this for granted because this may be part of that missing piece for some people, that even though we have Luke 2, 1 through 7 here, and the detail for us, the birth of Jesus, Remember what we covered last Sunday. This is not the beginning of Jesus. This is not the beginning of the existence of Jesus. He has existed for all of eternity, and he is God. This is just his entrance into life as we know it. This is where he took on flesh, the incarnation, and and he became a person, never laying aside his deity, but adding to his 100% deity, 100% uh, uh, humanity, and, and he showed up, and he came here. 
But this, even with that being said, this is not the first time that we see Jesus in the Bible. He doesn't appear just out of nowhere in the New Testament. In fact, you see him sprinkled throughout the Old Testament as well. In some ways, you see him sprinkled in as prophecy, right? When he arrived, right around 300 Old Testament prophecies that dealt with the Messiah were fulfilled through the arrival and the life and the, and the ministry of Jesus. Right around 300 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled specifically through the life and the ministry of Jesus. But even beyond those mentions in the Old Testament, there are also even appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament that most theologians would agree on, and I would as well, right? They're called Christophanies. They're the appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. So let me give you just a couple of examples of this specifically. And you don't have to turn here for the sake of time. You can read them on the screen behind me if you like. But one of these is in the book of Joshua chapter 5. Now remember the setting of Joshua. This is after Moses. This is after Moses' time has come and gone. Joshua is pretty much now kind of in charge of the nation of Israel, at least in leading them in battle. So Joshua chapter 5, we see this really interesting, just about three verses or three or four verses that cover this, this interesting experience that happens. Look at what it says, Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. It says, now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries, right? So you can almost see him. And Joshua was no dummy. He sees this probably quite imposing figure with a sword drawn. And his first question is, so are you with us or are you like you with the other guys? Because this would be really helpful information to know. Here's the response. It says, verse 14, he said, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, listen to this, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So most theologians would agree that this is a Christophany. It is an Old Testament, big word, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Right, that he shows up on the scene in the Old Testament times, right? And how do we know that this is him? How do we figure we can uh, uh, determine this from the evidence? Well, one, Joshua bowed down before him, and number two, he called the ground holy because of his presence. You go back to Exodus chapter three, for example, Moses at the burning bush. Verse 1, now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, right in the middle of nowhere, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. Let's pause. So who on earth is this, the angel of the Lord? I, I say it that way for a reason. In the Old Testament, when you see that phrase, the angel of the Lord, again, most would agree that it's a reference to a pre-incarnate, pre-New Testament appearance of Jesus. One of the reasons most agree with that is because once Jesus shows up in the New Testament, that phrase, the angel of the Lord, goes away. What you then see is an angel of the Lord. But much like with Joshua, 
Look at what happens when Mo, in this passage of Scripture. So verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush, and he looked, Joshua, or Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now, see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. It references to whoever that was in the bush as the Lord, as God. What was Moses' response? Verse 5, then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. So Jesus, again, this helps us understand the New Testament. That wasn't him starting his existence in Bethlehem. That was just his appearance in humanity as we know it, all right? That was the incarnation. He has always existed. For some of you, you think, oh, wow, I never knew this. He, I mean, he shows up at different places. It doesn't happen often. But in the Old Testament, there are these appearances, these Christophanies, these pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. Yeah, it's completely plausible. Why? Because he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He created this space. He can inhabit it whenever he wants to, right? And so we see these instances of the New Testament, but here's the thing. When we go back to the book of Luke, and when we move to Luke chapter 2, and the other birth narratives, there are 184 verses of birth narrative in the New Testament of Jesus's birth. These are just seven of them in Luke 2 that we looked at, but when you look at what happened that first Christmas as captured in the Gospels, what we find there is that something was incredibly different that particular night in Bethlehem. Until that point, the Jews had waited for the Messiah. The, the, the translation of the word Messiah is chosen one, understanding that the Messiah would be God that would come to set them free. This is what they understood the Messiah to do. And, and up until this point, Bethlehem was just this, just like, the, just like the old Christmas carol says, right? Just the sleepy little town. It wasn't known for anything holy until after this event. In fact, it was more known for Herod's uh, um, temple there. It was called the Herodium. It was this magnificent structure in Bethlehem that far outdistance anything else in regards to magnificence. That's what Bethlehem was known for. Six miles from Jerusalem, where Jesus would eventually be crucified, Bethlehem was known for much of, really little to, of anything. I mean, it was the city of David, yes, but there was not a lot of other significance associated with it. It, it was known for the fertility of its land. I mean, there were wheat fields around. It was called the city of bread, which again is interesting that the one who called himself the bread of life, Jesus, would be born in a city called the city of bread. Right? That's, that's kind of ironic, but it's really interesting. But Bethlehem wasn't known for much of anything until Jesus came. And when Jesus came, the, the significance of this was that God was coming near. The, in fact, here's a principle. I'm going to give you just a few of them this morning. Here's the principle that I want us to start with as we look at, continue on in this, this, uh, this part of the biography. The principle is this, that the birth of Jesus is when God became visible and accessible and approachable unlike any other time in history. When Jesus was born... At the incarnation, when God took on flesh, this was when God himself became visible. Remember what John said, we saw him, right? We, we beheld his glory, right? This is when God became visible and accessible. Remember the woman with the 12-year 
uh, health issue, the bleeding issue, and she sees Jesus passing by in the crowd, and she reaches out, touches just the edge of his garment, and she's healed by that, by that act of faith, right? She's healed. He was accessible. Can you see Jesus, John chapter 4, and he's traveling through Samaria, and there's a woman at the well, and he's sitting there because he's tired. He's 100% man as well as 100% God. And, and this woman carrying this heavy water jug that she brought every single day. Many believe she came in the middle of the day to avoid the scorn and the stares and the whispers of people around her because she had had failure after failure after failure relationally in her life. And she had looked and looked and looked to find something that would put all the pieces together. And so here she comes to this well, the middle of the day, probably burning up hot, and there's Jesus, God, visible, accessible, sitting there, and by the time the conversation was over, he had rescued her from her sin, had changed her life. She's in heaven today because of that meeting with him. She came and saw, right? He was accessible, and all through his ministry, it was God finally being able to be accessed as unlike ever before in history. He was approachable. People who were nothing like Jesus loved being with Jesus, This was was a total change of the way things had been. And it's not that God was different in the Old Testament. He hasn't changed, but he was now visible and accessible and approachable in a way that he had not been before. Matthew chapter 1 Matthew kind of hits the nail on the head when he mentions in his birth narrative of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and verse 23, he says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This is Isaiah 700 years before. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting name. Wonder what that means, <laughs> which translated means God with us. I mean, everything changed. He's now visible, he's accessible, and he's approachable. God on the earth like never before. It's kind of that missing puzzle piece, right? Eternal God who later is going to die for our sins, but this is how it all went down. Not to when he was born or began, but when he showed up. When he showed up for us right on time. 33 years he would walk this earth in sinless perfection. He would have countless thousands of conversations. He would stand before the rich and the powerful. He would would stand in conversation with Nicodemus, one of the most powerful religious rulers of his day. He would stand at at his arrests, right, when he was arrested and he had six different trials, many of them illegal in nature before he'd be crucified, three of those trials before the Roman officials, some of the most powerful men of that day, three of those trials uh, before the Jewish officials, some of the most powerful men of that day. Jesus would stand before the leaders, and yet he would also stoop before a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 when he would write on the ground and tell her that he didn't condemn her, go and sin no more. He would preach, he would teach, he would share parables, he would introduce the kingdom of God, he would ultimately do the greatest work for us to where he would give his life on the cross. He would be embraced by many, followed by many, and yet rejected and oppressed and completely uh, 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 hung out to dry, right? Crucified by his enemies. The most influential man who ever walked this earth. And yet in the midst of all of it, it was God making himself visible and accessible and approachable. By the way, 
what's up with the part about the virgin birth, right? That's a piece that many aren't willing to put into the puzzle because it's just too far outside the norm. Let me just say that if we hold to Genesis 1 and 2 and the creation account that God created from nothing, the heavens and the earth, that all that we see that God created from nothing, if we hold to that and we believe in that, then it's really, that, that's the harder miracle of all. Being born of a virgin it really is not that big of a deal when you're able to create anything from nothing. <laughs> Are you with me? Right? So, so the facts surrounding the virgin birth are miraculous in nature, yes, absolutely, but not beyond the plausible when we're thinking of what God can do. Here's the thing about the virgin birth, principle number two. Jesus' virgin birth was necessary to accomplish the work of salvation. It was a necessity. It had to happen. His virgin birth was a necessity. It had to go down this way. It wasn't necessary for his salvation. Jesus didn't need salvation. He's Savior. He's not one in need of salvation. But the elements of the virgin birth, it had to unpack this way in order for us to be saved. Here's why. In the Old Testament, when you look back at the Old Testament, sin was always a problem from Genesis 3 all the way on, right? God created. His creation was perfect. It was good, Genesis 1 and 2. Sin came, Genesis 3. And ever since that time in Genesis 3, sin broke the relationship of fallen man with holy God. What we begin to see in Exodus and then especially in Leviticus is we see a system that God put in place in response to sin. And the system was the sacrificial system. Animals would be sacrificed. So think about it this way. There would be a priest who was not perfect, who needed a sacrifice for himself also, who would basically oversee the sacrificial system where the people of Israel would bring sacrifices offered to God through the service of the priest. These sacrifices would be made in order to cover over their sins, to cover over, hang on to that, cover over their sins for a season. This was ongoing. There were a variety of different sacrifices. There was a day set aside every year called the Day of Atonement where sacrifices would be made to cover the sins of the people temporarily. But yet when Jesus came, remember, when Jesus came, everything changed. Now, how important is this? Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Let's bring up that passage from Hebrews chapter 9. It says, according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In other words, when you look at fallen man trying to reconcile relationship with, with God who is holy and who had created them, there had to be a high price that was made. And in God's economy, right, in his framework, it was sacrifice that would pay for sin. It was sacrifice that would ultimately deal with the ugliness. that we, we try to downplay it, but sin to God is absolutely atrocious because of his perfection and his holiness. And so he puts together this sacrificial system. The principle is, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You fast forward to the New Testament. Here's Jesus, God in flesh, eternal God, who's shown up. He's made his appearance. Matthew tells us about it. Luke tells us about it. The prophets foretold it. Jesus is on the scene. And ultimately, as he comes walking along at the beginning of his ministry, what does John the Baptist say? Do you remember this, John 1, 29? He points to him, and he says to, to the boys around him, boys, boys, hey, hey, look at there. Behold, the Lamb of God, sacrificial language. John the Baptist, John 1, 29, looking at Jesus physically, visibly, who's approachable, who's accessible. He says, the Lamb of God who what? Who takes away, not covers over, who takes away the sin of the world. 
John the Baptist knew who he was. John the Baptist would say, that's the one, that, that's the man whose sand, the, 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 the lace on his sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. John the Baptist would say about him, <laughs> he would say, listen, my whole role in life is to decrease. That's countercultural today, right? It's to decrease so that he can increase. Hey, John the Baptist, what's your life mission? Money, fame, accomplishment? Followers on social media? John, what is it? <laughs> it's just for me to get less and less and less and less so that he can get higher and higher and higher and higher. That's my life goal. Period. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, Jesus would explain it with even more clear language. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. If you were to ask John, what's your life mission? It would be, I decrease so that he can increase. If you were to ask Jesus, what's your life mission? I think Mark 10, 45 could probably be part of it. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom. It's the Greek word lutron. And it means exactly what you think it means, with one nuance. It was the price in the first century that was paid for the freedom of a slave. Ransom. We think about it today, we watch those made-for-TV murder mysteries, right? You know, there's, a, there's a kidnapping and then there's a ransom note. It's kind of the same thing. You pay this for freedom. You want your loved one back, you pay this, and they'll have freedom. It, it, it's that same connotation. The nuance is, however, don't assume by the word ransom that somehow God's hands were tied and he was in submission now to the devil, to the enemy. It wasn't that way. Jesus could have come off the cross any time he well-pleased. I mean, if he was going to conquer death and come out of a grave with a stone on, on the front of it, he could have come down from the cross anytime he was ready. He was never in submission to the will of the enemy. Never, ever, ever. He called the shots on the cross. Right? God was in firm control. So when we think about ransom, don't let your mind go there. That, oh, I'm, I'm in bondage now and I've got to pay this so that we can get what we want from the enemy because we're, out of, we're not in control. No, that part doesn't apply. The part of him dying and shedding his blood, Hebrews 9.22, so that mankind could have forgiveness because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin so that we could be made right. That is how this applies. That's the ransom that he paid. And the reason that it was satisfactory, big Bible word, propitiation, right? I won't ask you to spell it because I don't know if I can. The reason that the, that the virgin birth was necessary was because that sacrifice Jesus made was satisfactory to the Father. That's what propitiation means. It means a satisfactory sacrifice. The reason that the Father could look down at the sacrifice of his own son was because he was sinless, he was God, he was the perfect sacrifice that we needed, far better than the blood of bulls and goats. He was the perfect sacrifice. The Father looked down and said, satisfactory sacrifice paid. 
But not only was he the satisfactory sacrifice, listen, he was the satisfactory substitute too. Because honestly, uh, the, the blood of a bull or a goat doesn't really take my place very well. But when another man dies for me who was perfect as the perfect sacrifice, it's also the satisfactory substitute. That's why he said from the cross, it is finished. No more sacrificial system. This is done. No more need for sacrifices. Jesus could say, I am the one perfect sacrifice who took your place as your substitute. And the reason that was possible, here we come, we're circling back. The reason that was possible was because he was born of a virgin, conceived from a person, right? His mother Mary, 100% human, and yet conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a woman, I should have said more clearly, born of a woman, 100% human, and yet conceived by the Holy Spirit, 100% God. Without that you have no perfect sacrifice you have no perfect substitute you have no shot at salvation we die in our sins rightly so before a god who's perfect and holy and yet he came because the virgin birth he came as he did was necessary to accomplish the work of salvation here here's the thing i didn't recognize this till this week as i was preparing this all these christmas sermons i've done 20 years probably three every year i bet i've done over 50 christmas sermons probably i never thought about this until this week i, I think i read something in my study that kind of set it off or mentioned something like this that all through the christmas narratives 184 verses in the christmas narratives in the gospels all the way through them god is giving consistently constantly all through those christmas narratives Right? When you think about it, number one, th think about this. When, when Mary, many believe she was just a teenage Hebrew girl when she, was, um, when she found out that she was carrying the Messiah, whenever she learned that, I mean, that's kind of heavy news, would we agree? <laughs> you know, It's like, you're going to have a baby. And she's like, I'm a virgin. How does this happen? Okay? Kind of heavy news to, for, a, for anyone, much less a teenager, to start carrying around. How did God give to her? Well, she had a relative named Elizabeth who was in some ways kind of walking down that same road. Miraculous birth, granted, not the Messiah, not exactly all the same details, but she was advanced in age and found out she had conceived and was going to give birth. So he gave to Mary because she now had someone close to her, a relative, who could kind of relate. He gave to Joseph. Remember, Joseph was ready to say, done with this, hope life is good, I'm out. He was ready to do that. And what did God give to Joseph? Gave him a dream, gave him a visit from an angel. They said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, and the rest is history. He gave both of them a place for her to give birth. The inn was full. They'd made it to Bethlehem, and yet they had a place there. Many believe it was a cave, right? Some believe it was a stable. It doesn't matter. He provided for them. He gave them a place for her to give birth. He gave the shepherds an invitation for a front row seat, right, and an extra choir of angels to boot to come and see, to come and see Jesus, the Messiah that you've been waiting for for all these years, your whole life. He gave the Magi a star to get them to the location two years later where they could worship for themselves and to meet Jesus for who he was. And then he gave them a dream as well to make sure they had safe passage back to their homeland because already Jesus had enemies and opposers. And he gave Anna and Simeon in the temple eight days after his birth the opportunity of a lifetime that was so significant, Simeon would say, man, I can die in peace now because my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. 
He gave all through the birth narrative. He gave and he gave and he gave down to the point to where the greatest gift was the one he gave for you and me and all who've, who've ever lived of the Messiah who came, God in the flesh, visible, approachable, accessible for us. It was the greatest It was the greatest gift of all, the greatest gift he could ever give. Jesus fulfilled prophecy. He brought God near. He brought freedom to captives. He performed the work of salvation. And he calls sinners to repentance. He calls sinners to repentance, us, to repent, to turn from our sin, and to place our faith in him, to follow him. And all through these years, for decades and centuries, There are those that have done that, and they've met him at the bottom of a ditch. They've met him at the end of a broken marriage. They met him on the top of the mountain when life was good, but something was still missing, and everywhere else in between. People have met this Jesus and chosen to lay down their sin and to follow him from that point forward. And at the same time, sadly, there are those that will say, not for me. I'd rather be the one in charge. Thank you very much. And they miss him. Just like most missed him when he came, they miss him still today. Last principle and we're done. The birth of Jesus is ultimately about far more than just Christmas. You know, it's, it's, it's sad, and I guess I'm to blame as well, that the only real time we look at Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2 is in December you know, and, and figuratively, we, we kind of take those passages, if they were their own little bound books, and we put them on, we, we, we put them in a tote that's either red or green, and we put them up in the attic. Can you get that image right? And, and we don't ever look at them again until somewhere in December, we take them back down, and we open them off, and we blow the dust, and, and we read them again. The, these, these ver- th- this message today, what we've looked at in these passages, have implications 365 days of the year. Every single day, our walk with God is, is impacted by everything we've looked at in the birth of Jesus. It, it, it's, more, it's about more than just Christmas. It is about eternal life. It is about relationship with God. It is about a new start and a brand new heart and having our sins forgiven and our slate wiped clean and having peace and having joy like nothing in this world can offer. And to be able to walk through life with its hardships and with its rough edges and with its difficulties, to be able to navigate through that terrain, knowing that there's a God who sees everything from beginning to end, who, who, who resides in us as Christians in the person of the Holy Spirit, God himself, who's willing and able to give us wisdom and give us guidance. And where we fall short, he offers grace. And where we get off the path and our hearts get hard, he offers correction because he loves us. And all throughout it, he offers his presence until our eyes close in death on this side of this cold, hard, difficult world. And they open brand new on, another, on the other side to the life that he's always wanted for us. That's Christmas, right? That's what was offered to us. Prophesied of the Old Testament, made real in the new. It was a bud of the flower in the old, and it was bursting forth in color in the new when God came near. My question as we close is how do you know Jesus today? Do you know him as the central figure of a holiday you're going to celebrate in three months? Do you know him as the central figure of a book, right, that was written so long ago that to you it doesn't really have any bite, it doesn't really have any, any, uh, any control over you? Or do you know him as who he's always claimed to be, God, Savior, Lord?
because you're in a relationship with him. And if you know him that way already, are you just content to hang out where you've been for the last month or year or five years? Or does your heart want to go deeper and deeper and deeper? Because he still invites you today. Hey, come and see. <laughs> and if you don't know him, man, what on earth is keeping you? <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not the smartest man in the world, but I know a good deal when I see it. I mean, what on earth is keeping you from being stuck in the best life you can have for yourself, which honestly probably ain't that good, when standing and being offered to you is the life that the God who made you offers and paid an amazingly high price to secure. And all that stands between you and him <laughs> is not him offering the invitation, it's you taking him up on the offer. And saying, Lord Jesus, today I lay down my sin, meaning I changed my mind, I don't want it in me anymore, and I turn and I ask you to forgive and to save. And if you do it today, right where you sit, he'll do that. He'll save you. Let's pray. Lord, Merry Christmas means a lot more when we, when we say it in the context of what we've just looked at this morning. It's, it's not just a holiday. It's not just a two-week break from school or a one-month break from college or a few extra days off from work. Lord, it is, it is about the greatest event outside of the resurrection that has ever happened since creation. That when you chose to come for us, in a way that had never happened before. And you became visible, and you became approachable, and you became accessible. And even still today, God, you are, because even though Jesus would ascend back to heaven, God, you would send the Holy Spirit, 100% God as well, that in many ways Jesus said was even better because when we follow Christ, we surrender our lives and accept Christ as Savior and as Lord, you come to dwell within us in our hearts in the person of the Holy Spirit to where we can never say that we're without you. We can never say we're ever alone again. And Lord, this missing piece was, was when you came. It was that first Christmas. And you don't use that word in the Bible, but that's what it was. It was you coming so that we could know you personally. For some maybe even in this room or watching online, there's still that missing puzzle piece. They've got the good job and the great family and the nice car and friends and accomplishment and a lot of those things, but there's just still something in there that's been described as being that God-shaped vacuum that only Jesus can fill. It's just still that missing piece. And I pray that if they're here today in this room or watching online, Lord, they've heard the truth because we've read your word. I just pray they'd be willing now to act on it and to lay down that sin and invite Jesus to forgive and to take over. And Lord, for those of us that have done that, Lord, help us to remember humility because we're not saved because we deserve it or because we earned it. We're only saved by your grace. And Lord, I pray that none of us, not a one of us, will ever get over that. That sense of awe. Like a six-year-old on Christmas morning. That you were willing to save even us. So God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you tell us all this so we're not left to guess. 
Thank you that you did it all perfectly because you love us. Lord, help us to walk now in yieldingness to you. Not keeping you at a distance, but walking in relationship. For your glory, not ours. And in all of it, Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, we pray.